Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special installment of our Healing Circle series. This installment documents a full day of people coming together and sharing their experience, strength, and hope. It is hosted by Michael Lerner and includes very special guests, Rachel Naomi Remen, as well as Diana and Kelly Lindsay of Healing Circles Langley on Whidbey Island. This is part two of three. It is my tremendous pleasure and honor to introduce a colleague of over 30 years. Uh, Rachel Naomi Remen and I started the Cancer Help Program together. Uh, I would never have had the, the courage to do it if I hadn't met Rachel. Uh, she has been a teacher, colleague, and friend of mine for over 30 years. Um, she has, uh, her work is known all over the world. Her, her books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, are translated into many, many languages. Um, uh, she has a um, global following of people uh, for whom um, she has helped them find meaning, purpose, uh, joy, uh, and uh, gratitude in life. And I hope we continue to work together for many, many years to come. Rachel Naomi Remen. Good morning. Um, I am so soft-spoken. This sounds good, though, yes? Yes. yes. You can hear me, yes? <laughs> it's good. Um, I'd like to just start with a moment of silence um, to give us a chance to honor the place in us um, that has been called to this work. And um, be together in that place. So let's just take a moment of silence. And here's a little poem that was written by uh, Vivekan Flint, um, who discovered one of the things that he discovered in the discovery model um, that we do uh, at the ISHI program is that he was a poet. <laughs> he didn't know this. And he ended up being a published poet. Um, and this is the poem that he wrote about this work, the discovery model work. In a place of silence, the one who thinks can hear the whisper of the heart. In a place of trust, the one who cures heals. In a place of acceptance, a stone can explode into a butterfly. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace, peace, peace. And there is a butterfly in all of us, hidden. And the discovery model is a group experience which allows us 
to remember that and to bring it more into our lives. So um, I'm going to actually talk to you for two hours. I, I want to talk about discovery model work. And um, beside the Cancer Help Program, um, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness um, has programs for young doctors, medical students, um, residents, uh, and it's all discovery model work. So we go into this very cognitive environment where uh, who you are is what you can do and what you know and all of this, and we remind people why they've come and where their strength lies. So I want to just talk a little bit about discovery model, give you a sense of it, and I want to talk about some of the techniques of discovery model that we really concretely, that we have developed, because it will give you ideas of ways to create discovery model experiences for people, really. So um, many of the cancer groups that I have sat in on um, have been informational. Uh, people gather, and often th there are experts, or there's an expert running the group, right? Um, and the experts share technique, information, skill acquisition, the newest therapies, um, uh, things are taught to people. Um, it's uh, theoretical. Um, and it's very much like medical school. And in medical school, the basic thing is that the student is totally empty, um, and we experts are going to fill them up, you know, with what they need to know in order to be good doctors, right? Um, and this leads to a certain amount of anxiety on the part of the student, a certain amount of fearfulness. I'm doing this right. Am I doing this wrong? Should I be doing this or that? Is there something I haven't heard of that I should be doing? Um, and this, it, it's, it makes people feel unsafe. And my experience as a person who has had, um, oh my goodness, it's 62 years now, 62 year history of Crohn's disease with multiple surgeries and all of this sort of thing, is that the minute I got sick, people started focusing on me and trying to make me different than who I was. And the upshot of that was that I felt very fearful and weak. And the discovery model is an antidote to that. So a discovery model is, is, it is informational, but it's a certain kind of information. It's a different kind of information. But most importantly, it's transformational. It transforms people's attitudes, their feelings about themselves. It transforms their fear, their aloneness, their constriction. Um, it empowers them to live whatever life belongs to them and to go with that life no matter where they are going. And I think that's the brilliance of what Michael has put together in the um, Cancer Help Retreat. It isn't one size fits all. It's basically the program fits every individual person, no matter who they are or what their story is. 
Um, so let me say a little bit more about discovery model. It, it's radical, it's, especially in a medical school setting. It could not be more radical. Um, the course uh, draws on learning models completely outside of cognitive learning and technical learning. Right? It draws on models such as adult education, uh, contemplative studies, formation education, which is the, the educational format for um, the clergy. Right? Uh, it draws on humanistic and, and transpersonal psychology. It draws on aesthetics. It draws on narrative education, storytelling. Um, it draws on poetry and imagery. And the discovery model is not about experts. There are no experts in the discovery model. Um, the premise of the discovery model is very simple, that when a group this size, 50 people, gather in a room, there are a couple thousand uh, years of experience, right? Wisdom, things that are learned not theoretically but by lived experience about any topic that you would care to talk about. And all of that wisdom, all of that experience is not harvested. You may not even realize you're carrying it, but it's, it's your life experience. And this is the stuff on which the discovery model is based, right? So basically, I used to have to explain this a lot. Now these days I say, it's Wikipedia. <laughs> it's a form of Wikipedia. But it's about the wisdom to live and to grow in spite of adversity, to live in a high wind and live well in, in a high wind. And, you know, especially the hundreds of years of life experience um, are especially on topics like this, courage and loss and the ways people recover from loss and mystery. Mystery is a very important thing when you're up against something like cancer or Crohn's disease or learning to be a doctor. Right? Mystery and awe and calling and commitment and love. And we draw on this life experience and what this means is there are no experts. As a matter of fact, there are no teachers. And there are no learners. Everyone is a teacher. Everyone is a learner. The wisest, most profound thing that is said in a session may come from the youngest person in the group, the least educated person in the group, so the teacher is diffused through the entire group of people. And we learn that our experience has value for other people. And that helps us to know that we, exactly as we are, have value for, for other people. And of course, a lot of other things come about when you set up something like this. There's no right or wrong answers. That whole fear of, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? Should I be doing this instead of that? That just goes away. There are no right or wrong answers. All ideas contribute. All experience contributes. 
And in the case of the medical situation, we have a faculty of 13 guys um, who are full professors of this and that. And we have medical students who are millennials and who have been into, they've been in school for four whole months. <laughs> and they all take the course together. And some of the people have been teaching in this course, we, this is our 25th year. They've been teaching since they were millennials just about, right? And every year the outcome of the course is the same, and every year the path, the path to that outcome, the process, is totally different. But what is found is, is universal. It's human, it's strong, it's important, and it's always the same kind of thing. So what's happened to all of us in having taught so long is we trust the process, absolutely. I have no idea when I start a three-hour session uh, with, with a, a, a group of 100 medical students, no idea what's going to happen, what will be said, how this is going to play out. I just know where we're going to be in 15, after 15 sessions. We're going to be in exactly the same place where people have the courage to be who they are in difficult times and the resilience to hold to that. So let me say a little bit more. Um, yeah, so basically what I'm saying is that no one sits outside of the process. I don't sit outside of the process. Nobody. We're all in this process together, just like life. And there are only participants. And one of the students had a great name for this. He called it um, a community of inquiry. A community of inquiry. And inquiry, as a former philosophy major, is a lost art. <laughs> it's Socratic. It basically asks questions and listens to all answers. It's, it's a technique. Um, people are afraid of questions. People like, in our culture, they like facts, <laughs> if possible. But a community of inquiry is a shared adventure. And that's the way that um, our discovery model feels. It feels like we're going to have an adventure together. Okay? Um, the most important thing I think that discovery model work does is that it helps people believe in themselves, it helps people trust their life path, and it heals fear. So it, it empowers people in this way. And it also, I just, you know when I've got all these pieces of paper here, last night I just wrote down things like that, you know, like a sentence. So I'm going to do a little riff around some of these sentences. Um, it uncovers something that is hidden. A lot of people go into a learning situation to, to attach something more to themselves, right? And in a discovery model situation, you discover something you brought with you. Something you may have forgotten, something somebody else may have shamed you about, so you've hidden it from yourself. 
Um, something you've put away in such a safe place that you, you don't know where it is anymore, right? And in the process of discovery model, you remember yourself. You remember yourself. And other people remember themselves. And that is a shared process. All the ways that you have been separated from yourself by shame or judgment, um, those ways no longer have an effect. So you're no longer separated from the unique person who you are and your unique strength and the way it works. And that is witnessed by everyone in the room. Everyone witnesses everyone else in that process. So you explore beliefs and values. You remember your stories. You get to tell them and see them valued and respected. Some of the things about yourself that you have felt ashamed of turn out to be your strengths. You build the skills to discover meaning in daily life, the meaning that is right there that you haven't seen before. And there is only a couple of techniques behind all this, right? And I'd like to share them up front because it will make all the other things that I say make more sense. We do something, uh, the whole thing, as, as a group, as a process, it's based on a certain kind of listening, which is different than the kind of listening that people do ordinarily. Okay? The medical students came up with a name for this. They call it generous listening. I love it. I love this name, generous listening. So how this works is this. Usually, when people are listening, they're busy inside. Now, sometimes they're quite consciously busy inside, and sometimes the busyness is right on the level between the conscious and the unconscious mind, right? And they're doing things like this. Someone is talking to them, and uh, they have their own agenda, right, which goes like this. Um, um, Do I like what this person is saying, or don't I like it? Do I like this person, <laughs> right? Or um, don't I like this person? Do I agree with what this person is saying? Or don't I agree with what this person is saying? Do I think what this person is saying is important? Or, or do I not think what this person is saying is important? Right? And then we do what the, the students, are so funny, these, these millennials, um, call competitive listening. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Which goes like this. Is this person smarter than I am or not as smart as I am? Do they come from a better social class than I do or not as good a, cl- a social class as I do? do they ha- are they more educated than I am or less educated? So they're positioning, you're positioning yourself with respect to the person who is talking. Right? And then, of course, um, with, with a professional situation, we have another whole layer, which is what's wrong with this person? And do I know how to fix it? And if I don't know how to fix it, do I know where to look to find how to fix it? And if I don't know that, is there someone I can call in as a consultant? Right. So all of this agenda 
is going on as someone is trying to tell you something that's important to them. And almost everything that is said in a discovery model is important to the person speaking. Right? So we do generous listening. We drop all that. We completely drop all that. We're not even listening to understand why the person feels the way they do or why they think, think the way they do. We are simply listening for one thing only, which is what is true for this person at this moment in time. We are there to witness it, to receive it unconditionally, simply to know. Simply to know. Now, this kind of listening creates a kind of a rare experience for people. It creates a, a space of safety. So radical that when, you ex when you're in it with another person, you realize you've been looking for it for a long time and you have not felt safe most of the time. This is what safe feels like. This unconditional listening and respect for whatever the other person is saying. And then something interesting happens because in a space of safety, people can discover what's true for them for the first time. It comes from deep inside them where they've held it protected. And then it comes into the room and they can hear it for the first time and they can recognize it for the first time because they've been made safe enough to bring it from its safe hidden place inside. Right? And this does something, of course, very powerful with respect to fear. Um, the constriction of fear. The... Worry, is someone going to approve or disapprove, both of which are judgment, on what we say, is completely gone. And it allows people to become larger and stronger. Um, this kind of listening heals people. In fact, it's probably the basic healing relationship is the unconditional acceptance of where someone is and what matters to them, and what matters to them. So we do that, right? And one of the first things that you need to do to do um, uh, this kind of work is to create the safe space. So we'll talk about this, and we talk, we talk to the group about the collective wisdom and the, the adventure of uncovering what's already in the room. And we talk about this particular technique, this way of listening that we are going to use throughout the entire experience. Okay. And then we offer a place of refuge. Right at the beginning, we offer a place of refuge. Now, if, if we were um, a healing circle, I wouldn't have started with that poem. I would have done something very simple. I would have said, let's just take a moment and remember ourselves. And let's just do that right now, because this is a very basic thing. 
just allow yourself to put down whatever you're holding. Now, when you give an instruction to people, <laughs> they, they do what you just did. They put down whatever they're holding, right? But they also put down whatever they're holding inside. And what they're holding inside may be very constrictive, smaller than who they are. It's an invitation that is accepted at every level of the human being. The level that's holding on to the pen and the paper, and the level that's been holding on to something for years. Put down whatever you're holding. And take a moment and begin to follow your breath. Just notice your breath coming and going in you. Just notice that. Just put your attention on your breath. And let yourself notice the wisdom of the breath. We let go of whatever is old and used up and no longer supports our lives. Notice how you let go, how easily you can let go of whatever is old and used up and no longer supports your life. Notice that out-breath, how easily you breathe out. And then we take on what is new and fresh and life-affirming. And notice that, too. Letting go of the old that no longer supports life. Taking on the new, the fresh, the life-affirming. I mean, how wise is this? And you've been doing this since the moment you were born. You do it 12 times a minute without noticing. And now see if you can put your attention at the very end of your out-breath. There's a little nanosecond there, a little moment of stillness, and silence, and peace, and rest. It doesn't last very long, but it's exceptionally deep. See if you can notice that little silence, that little stillness. That silence that's at the center of your being. You come home to yourself 12 times a minute without noticing. And be there in that little moment as deeply as you can. Surrender into it every time you arrive there. This takes practice, but just start now. And let yourself 
yourself, see if there's a sound that is uniquely your own sound that could come from this place at the center of your being. Let that sound come through your mouth in the form of an ohm. Listening to a Healing Circles conversation hosted by Michael Lerner with guests Rachel Naomi Remen and Diana and Kelly Lindsay of Healing Circles Langley. Now, when we're talking to medical students, we talk about this in terms of physiology. This is based on physiology. Uh, it's actually a very, very, very old form of meditation. Very old, right? And this is something you want to practice. You want to first practice it as we just did it, and then you can practice it, you know, in any downtime. In any downtime, you're hold on hold on the phone, trying to get Macy's on the phone, right? This is a time to practice. You're stopped at a stoplight. This is a time to practice. And practice with your eyes open and with your eyes closed. Open, obviously, if you happen to be driving your car, right? Until you can come to total peace and silence in two breaths. Then you have something handy. If you're in the middle of a difficult conversation, anytime you need to remember yourself and take refuge in yourself, in the silence, which is always with you, you don't have to remember anything. It's it's there. You just have to go home to it. In a difficult procedure, you know, if you're a person with cancer, you're faced with a lot of difficult procedures. I'm faced with a lot of difficult procedures, even now, after all these years. Take refuge in yourself. Nothing to remember, no tapes, nothing. You always have your breath with you. You're coming to a place of refuge in yourself 12 times a minute. In the case of medical students, we tell them in places of anxiety, like when they're trying to remember on an exam, right? If they do this breath thing first, the memory comes back easily. The things that in their anxiety they have forgotten come back easily. Okay? So this is the way that um, we start a session by remembering ourselves, taking refuge in ourselves, and then hearing that sound, which is there in everybody. Hmm? 
here are some of the techniques. I'll just share a few with you. Um, oh, one last thing. Uh, all the interactions have a set of what we call the habits, habits of, of interaction, right? No advice is offered unless it's asked for. Okay? Um, no one interrupts anybody. Okay? We have an awareness of a shared discussion, but also shared time. We need to leave time for other people to speak. And we do that in our own way. Okay? And then the hard piece is confidentiality. And, you know, some people do this at the beginning, and then they'll do seven, eight sessions. Some people do at the beginning of each session, they remind people of the, the, and each one of these steps is agreed to by the group. If, if it's not agreed to, there's discussion. The confidentiality piece is the hardest piece, and that depends on where you are in the United States. In California, generally a group will say, they'll, they'll say either nothing leaves the room, or I can tell one person who's important to me, but I can tell them in a way that whatever happened in here, whatever was said, they would never be able to identify who said it. As a matter of fact, they don't even know who's in the room with me here. Right? Or um, it's fine if you tell anybody anything. You come to an agreement, it's negotiated out as a group so that everyone present can feel safe. And sometimes you can't get that. And then you have to ask the person who needs more confidentiality, stronger walls than the others, to, to go home and to think about it. And do they are they willing to change their sense of things, or is this not the group for them? That's how important the confidentiality can be in, in a discovery model like the kind that we're, we're using. Then there's one more thing, which is on, on this habits of interaction, allow silence. And we talk about silence. And we, you know, the, the idea being that silence is empty. Um, silence is, somebody has to do something. I mean, certainly as a doctor, you treat it as if it's a hemorrhage. You know, it requires action, right? But we reflect on silence because we're going to be experiencing a lot of silence. And it's the place where we connect, we connect to ourselves, we connect to each other, and having the experience of sitting in silence with a group this large, where everyone is sitting in the silence, it's not an emergency for anybody, right? Is so powerful. It's very strengthening, and it also eases fear. There's another way that we're allowed to just be with each other. And that this is important. And as, as a person who, who knows process, because I've done therapy with people, um, what somebody says after the end of a silence is much, much deeper than where you were 
when you went into the silence. And learning to trust silence is so un-American. I mean, you, you, people will struggle with this one. This is a hard one. But it has to do with simply being, being alive, breathing together. Yeah. And there's a little poem written by a very special person um, and surprising person, uh, William Butler Yeats, about silence, which is one of the most powerful. Because in listening, in generous listening, you do this in silence. You don't say, oh, I had that, something like that happened to me, right? Because you're trying to connect. The silence is what connects you. The listening itself connects you. When you say, you know, someone's talking, you say, oh, that happened to my uncle, right? You take them out of the place of connection. You're disconnecting when you do that. When you simply receive in silence, you're connecting. And this is what William Butler Yeats has to say about sitting in silence. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. Let's say it again. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So generous listening, allowing silence, right? There's another name for this, which depending on who is sitting in the room with you, either is helpful or not helpful, and the word is presence. People become present in a discovery model. They inhabit who they are. They inhabit their lives fully. They put away the constriction of fear because they are safe enough to do that. And then you can start. Then you can start. And you know, the sharing from experience... There's nothing to remember. There's no right or wrong answer, right? Um, your experiences become part of you. They're, they're woven into you. And when groups share experience, our experiences become part of everybody in the room. Their experiences, their wisdom becomes part of us. another little poem uh, about the right and the wrong. You know, we're, the, we, there's so many cultural things that you want, that, that are not helpful at times like this. Um, I had a dream, and by the way, this was given to me when I was doing a, um, uh, when I was doing the, the morning group here um, with people in the cancer retreat. A man handed it to me, and um, he had made it out of two 
other poems. He just put it together like that. Uh, I had a dream that honeybees were making honey in my heart out of my old failures. There is no right or wrong. Beyond the right and the wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. It's another thing about the discovery model. I had a dream that honeybees were making honey in my heart out of my old failures. There is no right or wrong. Beyond the right and the wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Yeah. So another way of looking at um, this kind of learning is that it's very old in the human race. We call it tribal. In a funny way, it's an intergenerational mentoring experience where everyone is mentored and everyone is mentoring, right? The wisdom is held collectively by the tribe. Everyone learns, everyone teaches. And when you look at um, tribal systems, this is very fundamental to most tribal systems. So what, what you're doing with the uh, discovery models, you're creating um, a human tribe with all of its wisdom and all of its love and all of its caring and all of its acceptance and all of its refuge for every person who is in the room. Non-hierarchical, egalitarian listening. Right? So let's talk about um, some of the approaches. Let's see. I keep coming across things before. Uh, one more last thing. <laughs> one more. <laughs> right. When you become ill, it activates a kind of an American approach to imperfection, right? <laughs> which is um, fixing, fixing, and helping, right? And helping, as well-intentioned as it is, the person helping you is very much in touch with their strength because that's what they're using to help you with. And you can become very in, in touch with, with your weakness. And what people have said to me is that this is a place where I'm learning without feeling weak or empty or somehow lesser than, than other people, right? So helping is not a relation, it's not an egalitarian relationship. As much as we, we come from our heart place when we do it, it's, you have to be really conscious about how you do this so that it is an egalitarian relationship. Fixing, which is our method of choice. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people have tried to fix me in 62 years. Right? I'm grateful to some of them because without their help, I would not be here. But with only their help, I wouldn't be here either. I'd be an invalid. Right? Fixing is a form of judgment. 
it basically says that something is broken and it needs repair. And that's a worldview. It's the worldview of medicine. <laughs> medicine is the cosmology. Right? It's a worldview of medicine. Something's broken and it needs repair. It's the worldview of our culture, our larger culture as well. Right? And in a discovery model, nothing is broken, but something is hidden in each one of us. And the world isn't broken, it's hidden. It's a very mystical way of looking at it. And we will uncover that hiddenness in all of its fullness on, on this path of adventure together. It's kind of an, a different attitude, if you want to think of it that way. So let me talk about some of the techniques. And we, we use everything, anything, right? Um, Angelus Arian, the anniversary of her death is coming up. So let's start with one of the things that she taught me that is very, very helpful in this. And that's getting people to um, keep a three-question journal. Now this is a, a riff on, on her work. And it's a very powerful riff because it connects people to the life around them, to the meaning in the life around them, to, um, well, let me tell you about it, and, and you tell me what you think. Um, it's very simple. At the, you, you take a, 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 a journal that you have only for this purpose. And I'm not a journal writer. Even I can do this thing, right? Um, You've got about 10 minutes a night to do it. And you generally do it after supper, in the early evening, sort of towards the end of the day. You find a quiet place, a place where you can have 10 minutes by yourself without being interrupted by a person or a phone call or, you know, a, a text or anything like this. And you sit quietly and you're going to review your day backwards three times. Right? Almost like a video. If you're a visual person, um, it may be easier for you. Uh, I'm not a visual person, and I can do this. Where you say to yourself, okay, where was I just before I sat down here? I was at dinner. And you, know, you just allow yourself to remember that. And then before that, I was driving here. And before that, I was in a meeting. And before that, maybe I was in my garden. And before that, and you just run your day backwards, like, like a videotape, but backwards, right? And you're heading towards the morning. You're heading towards the time that you got out of bed, right? And the first time you do this, you ask yourself a question, this question. What surprised me today? What surprised me today? As soon as you find anything that surprised you, not the most surprising thing, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for strengthening your capacity to be surprised, noticing probably something you did not notice when you lived through it, 
going forward, but going backwards, you notice it. I was surprised by the kindness that the checker showed to the person in front of me um, in the supermarket just before I came home. And you write that down, right? And then you go to the place where you're sitting again, and you start all over again. And you ask yourself the second question, um, what touched my heart today? What touched my heart today? And you begin to go backwards again towards the morning, looking for the first thing you come to that touched your heart. And as soon as you find something that touched your heart, you write it down. And you don't have to write a whole lot. You can write as much as you want, but you don't have to. You just want to write down what touched your heart. You could do it in two sentences if you want. And then you do it for the last time. You go back to where you're sitting, take a moment, and start the review back, the, the daily review backwards again. And you ask yourself the third question, what inspired me today? And the first person that I ever um, told this to and, and, and got to do this, right, was um, a guy who came to one of our uh, doctor meetings. Um, his wife made him come because he was a surgeon. He was so profoundly depressed by his life. He was a, a cancer surgeon, actually, um, that he was going to drop out. He couldn't do this anymore. He could barely get out of bed and go and see those people. You know, just, I mean, he just couldn't do it anymore. Right? And she said, be, you, you can retire, but before you do this, you have to come to Commonweal and do this thing. Right? So he came... And he was, you know, really, really depressed and very walled off. And Angelus had just been talking to me about the journal, so I figured out I'd try it with him. So I suggested it to him. And he says, well, I don't know. I don't think so. And I said, it's cheaper than Prozac. (laughs) And I sort of shamed him into it, right? And three days after the end of the workshop, he calls me up and he says, okay, Rachel, what's the trick to this? And I said, what kind of trick? What are you you talking about? He says, I've been doing this for three days and I get the same answer to every question. Nothing, nothing, and nothing. I don't understand how I'm so busy and nothing is happening to me. And I said, are you looking as if you're a doctor? He says, of course I am. I'm a surgeon. I said, no. Look as if you're a storyteller or a poet or you make movies. Right? Look for the stories. And there was this silence. And he says to me, I'll try, Rachel, which is not a good sign. (laughs) And I expected to hear from him. And I didn't. And I figured, well... Nice try, Rachel, you know? And then there was another workshop, maybe about nine months later, and he came to it. I saw his name on the list. And then he told us what happened. He said, at first, it was nothing, nothing, and nothing. 
He had forgotten how to see. There's an old saying, the voyage of discovery lies not in seeking new vistas, but in having new eyes. And you know, this discovery model, it doesn't just happen in the meeting. You begin to take it out into the world. And that's what this little exercise does, right? So it was nothing, nothing. And then he began to see things. Someone's tumor was an 18th of an inch smaller. Even though the chemo wasn't supposed to work for this tumor, it was obviously working. And he was surprised by that. I mean, that, that was the kind of thing, right? And then he began to see lots of other things, things that he did not see living forward through his day. <clears throat> he could only see them uh, seven hours after they happened um, in, the, in his bedroom. You know, and he was astounded. He was astounded. There was this lag time. He says he felt like he had been under a spell, like in a fairy tale, and he could only see life seven hours after it happened to him, and he couldn't see it when it was actually happening to him. He said, and then the miracle happened. I said, what was the miracle? He said, the gap shortened. And I began to be surprised, and my heart was touched, and I was inspired in the moment my life was happening to me, and then everything changed. Right? So you invite people to fully inhabit their lives. You don't tell them that necessarily. You, they, you wait until they tell you. <laughs> but this little exercise strengthens the will to live in people, his depression, which is, I think, attack, an attack on the will to live, gone. This is a way to strengthen the will to live, the hidden will to live in people. Surprise. How enlivening is this? Your heart is touched, you're connected, you're inspired by something larger in people than themselves. Okay? This is a very helpful thing to do when people are struggling with a disease. Notice it's not frontal. We're not talking about cancer here. It's something that will affect people, all people, and especially important for people with cancer. But you do the intervention here, and the effect is there. Okay? When people sit down in a group and we say, well, let's do some introductions and everyone gets ready. And the cancer groups that I visited early on, before we really started going here at Commonweal, because I wanted to find out how this was done. It wasn't done very much. Right? Um, People would say, almost like an AA, hello, uh, my name is Rachel and I have ovarian cancer like this. I mean, it was almost like your identity changed in the experience, and got a whole lot smaller, in the experience of having the disease. Right? And so we start by asking people a single question. Would you just say your name and where you're from? Right? Um, and tell us one thing about yourself that no one would know by looking at you. You start with the hidden thing, right? 
And that looks like, could look like this, right? My name is Rachel, and I have a Maine Coon cat who weighs 30 pounds, right? And he looks like a lynx, right? Right. Let's do that. Anybody. My name is, and something about yourself. I used to be an Olympic snowboarder, right? Um, something about yourself. I used to race um, uh, Porsches as a young person. Let me tell you about that, because this is discovery model stuff in spades. My mother was a very unusual woman. She's one of the founders of public health nursing in the United States. And she was 46 when I was born. And um, I didn't know her very well until I got ill. And then she sort of came out of the woodwork, because she's working all the time. She came out of the woodwork with something like this. Um, I had been told that there was no cure of my disease. I would die by the time I was 40. And I would go home. I, I was to go home and not go back to college and um, lie on, my, on the couch waiting to die, essentially, by the time I was 40. This was not my life plan, and I was severely depressed, and I was lying on the couch for two weeks when my mother, and I weighed about 80 pounds. I weigh maybe 140 right now, right? So I was, I looked anorectic, right? My mother came in one day, gathered me up, and said, we're going for a drive, and I was whining and victimized, and she said, get in the car, and I got in the car, and she took me to the Long Island um, Raceway, and she had me given competitive driving lessons. <laughs> and I raced Porsches until I was 22. And what my mother, my mother was an my mother herself was a very fearful driver. I mean, she was not interested in cars. What she was interested in. I couldn't walk two blocks. I, I've not, even now, my stamina is very low, right? But she wanted me to know that I could drive a car at 110 miles an hour even though I couldn't w walk two blocks. She wanted me to know that I could move through the world like that, right? Discovery model. That was my first experience of discovery model. So, just real simply, your name, something about you that we wouldn't know just by looking at you. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, come on. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, my name is Georgian. My name is Georgian, and I love to sleep outside under the trees most of the summer. Great. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. I'm Tina, and I spent seasons as a wilderness ranger. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Sure. I'm Diane, and I used to tend bar. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. I used to swim for the city of New York. You used to swim for the city of New York? Amazing. <laughs> Anyone else? I'm Shell, and I love to learn how to ferment new kinds of food. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Speak up, speak louder. This is a tough room. Yeah. I'm Lee, and I lived in a chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? I'm 
Cheryl, and I used to scuba dive with sharks in the aquarium. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone on this side? Anybody? Yeah. When I was five years old, I almost drowned in the swimming pool. I ended up becoming a lifeguard water safety instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. I'm Tom, and I'm addicted to honey. <laughs> 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 Two more, yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? My name is Sue, and I have twin boys born in Korea that I adopted in my 40s, and one is an artist, and right now he's having an art show standing in front of his art in Minneapolis. Oh, how wonderful is that? Do you get the idea what would happen in a room full of people who are about to introduce themselves? My name is so-and-so, and I have ovarian cancer. <clears throat> Something different. You don't have to talk about it. All of a sudden, people are saying, wait, what, 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 what do you know? Um, this, is, this is part of who I am, right? You're listening to a Healing Circles conversation hosted by Michael Lerner with guests Rachel Naomi Remen and Diana and Kelly Lindsay of Healing Circles Langley. This is a classic discovery model technique. Classic. I mean, it has all the dimensions of discovery model. Simple, look inside yourself, remember something, bring something forward that nobody has seen before, have it received warmly by everyone saying, you did what? <laughs> right? Um, somehow, you're bigger than your cancer, in, like that. Like that. The power of the tribe, the power of who we really are, the hidden, and you know, it's so amazing because sometimes some little old guy or some little old lady will tell you something, like I was a trapeze artist for, <laughs> and you know, you have a sense of what else is hidden in there? You know, how wonderful this is. And how exciting for me when people bring forward these kinds of things. How do I feel about life? How do I feel about people? So I think we need to take a brief break, yeah, if we could. Because I have some more techniques. <laughs> so we have another about 40 minutes with Rachel. <laughs> Hi. Um, so let me just go on with some, uh, I just want to give you some of the ideas because you can work off the principles of some of these ideas and, and make your own that, that fit for you or to use these if they fit for you. Um, often we ask people what it is that they, they need, right? And the, one of the most common things that people say is courage. Courage. Yeah. And frankly, just being alive these days, you need courage. At least that's my experience, right? But uh, anything like that, 
you know? So the usual approach is let's do some courage exercises, right? <laughs> let's, um, let's whatever it is, we don't have it, we need it, right? Uh, let's build it. Um, and in a discovery model, it's already there. I mean, what is so amazing to me, a group full of people with cancer who have been through some of the most challenging treatments um, have let go of all sorts of things in order to take hold of life are sitting there telling you they have no courage. <laughs> um, I actually had a recent experience with a group of nurses who told me they had no courage. And I knew that if I fell to the ground and started bleeding from my um, uh, uh, vein and uh, of artery in my neck, these women would have been on it, <laughs> right? Like, but but no, they're they're not courageous people. They they have no courage. So we do something called an affect bridge, an affect bridge. This is from psychosynthesis. This is straight up psychosynthesis. The concept is that we already have what we need, but we don't know. That's part of the discovery model. That's part of it. We're always holding ourselves too small. We have taken other people's definition of ourselves as being who we are. None of this is true, right? But we, we live that way because we believe that it's true, right? So anything you've ever experienced in your life can be re-experienced. So an affect bridge goes like this. It's a, it's a meditation, a group meditation. And whenever you do a group meditation, you have people share out what this was like. right? And with, with the discovery model, you're moving energy. Um, often a person is like a figure ground. They're two faces or it's a, a goblet and they are living in the figure they've never seen the goblet but it's there it's hidden remember it's hidden so an affect bridge goes like this remember a time when you experienced being courageous when you experienced being courageous when you felt you had courage when you did something courageous is even a better way to say that. Remember some time when you had courage, when you, you know, you did something courageous, right? And you give people a minute to identify. Remember, they're calling on their own experience now. And then you say, in your imagination, go back into that time. Be there as if it's happening now. And you allow them, you encourage them to go back. In, where are you? <laughs> when you when you experience this courage, right? Who was around you? Right? And where did you experience this courage in your body? And just experience what your face was like when you were filled with courage. What was your face like? How were your shoulders? How were your feet on the ground? How did your spine feel? Right? And you just put them back into a memory, right? Surprising how easy it is to do this for many people. Where in your body 
do you experience the courage the most strongly? Experience it here, experience it in my elbow, <laughs> experience it here, experience it in my knees, right? Put your attention there. Put your attention in the place that has the most courage in this, in this moment of courage, right? And now experience the courage spreading up, down, to the sides. Experience it spreading out in you. And let it slowly move through you until it goes through the soles of your feet and anchors you to the earth. It comes out your hands, comes out your face, and begin to overflow and radiate the courage into the room. Right. Now very gently open your eyes. And you feel the whole room changes when people do this. You can feel the change in the room. What was this like? What was this story of courage? Where was the courage? And you, they, they begin to share all this sort of thing. And you say, okay, well, you know, you may need to draw on your courage again for a procedure, for, for whatever. You may need to draw on your courage again. You can always do this. The more you do this, the more you can access your capacity for courage and make it in the present. Bring it into the present. You already know courage. You know how to do it. And you know, people who have a diagnosis of cancer have used a lot of courage, which they're not even aware of. Sometimes they'll go right to their experience and say, oh, as I was lying there on that gurney, <laughs> right, on my way to whatever they were on their way to, right, that's their moment, right? Or it may be a moment from, you know, uh, when you were a swimmer for the New York City, whatever, right? And you may have experienced courage back there, who knows? It may be a moment from childhood. And that might be the last time you experienced courage because you had very repressive parents. It doesn't matter when it was, you can reactivate it in yourself. And it's a very powerful tool to know how to do that. It's not that you don't have courage. You may not have been allowed to have courage. And by the way, the discussion afterwards will go like that sometimes. You may not have been allowed to have courage. Um, you may not have had your courage reflected back to you by others. Um, many different things that people say. But their experience when they go to the affect bridge is so immediate. It's so powerful. And you can root that again by saying, allow an image to come for your courage. Is it an animal? Is it? And you know what the women almost always say? It's amazing. And this goes back to the archetypes. It's a tree. It has deep roots and life flows through it into the little leaves on the very end of it. Right? 
and you're, the, the women as as trees it goes back a long. We, we used to dance in in, in full moon, you know, uh, bringing up the feminine energy. It's just amazing how uh, these these images. You have people draw their images, put it up on your on your refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, bring it into your life. Other ways of making the hidden visible. Ritual. There have been 18,000 medical students who have gone through the Healer's Art course since 19, 1991. Right? It's 25 years. Right? 91? Yeah. Um, they've all done ritual. None of them know. We don't call it ritual. Otherwise, no one could do it. We just do it. And a ritual is a pattern of interaction such that something larger that is in the room, something hidden, becomes manifest. The ritual doesn't make it happen. The ritual just makes it visible. And it makes it visible to the collective. Now, I don't know what, what uh, has been done in these, these sessions before, but let me tell you about a very simple ritual. Uh, we do it with the students with meaning, but with people with cancer, you would do it this way. Bring an object, a symbolic object with you that represents to you your power to heal. Right? And it has to be small enough to be held in the palm of your hand, walk through your environment, and maybe something you're wearing, <laughs> you know, and you wear it all the time. You don't know that. But walk through your environment asking yourself, what is my power to heal? What's my healing like? Or what, what, what is my healing like? What does it look like, right, my healing? Right? My power to heal. And some object will speak to you. You'll notice it. It's almost like it's outlined in yellow, like when you're outlining it uh, in a book. And you may say, well, that's ridiculous. This um, Ming vase <laughs> is my power to heal. Take it. <laughs> your unconscious mind is telling you something about your power to heal yourself. Okay. And everybody comes and we do a very simple thing. We sit in a circle and we begin generous listening. There's the first, there's the silence, and we do the breath exercise so that everybody is aware of the stillness. And you begin listening from that place of stillness at the end of your breath. You begin listening. Right? And everyone, the instruction is everyone is going to listen. Nobody speaks except the person who is speaking. And when I do these, I have an object of my own. Everybody, no, no, no leaders. Everyone is a participant. And you see, we're going to begin, the person on my left is going to hold up their object, whatever it is, and say... This represents my power to heal. Right? And um, this is why. Talk about it a little bit. It belonged to my great-great-great-grandmother who lived to be 106, right? Or 
um, whatever they tell you about it in about three minutes. Everyone has about three minutes. And when they finish speaking, they put their power to heal in the middle of the room. And then the next person does exactly the same thing. And this is ritual. It happens over and over. Everybody holds up one at a time as you're moving around the whole circle until everyone, including you, you're generally the last person because you start with the person. I, I always, for some reason, go to the left. Um, I start with the person over here. Okay. And then we say, okay, everyone take back your object and just hold it for a moment. And now, pass what you're holding to the person on your left. Receive what you've been given and take a moment to acknowledge the wisdom in it. And you wait for 30, 45 seconds. Pass what you're holding to the person on your left. Receive what you've been given. And you just say that over and over and over again. And as this happens, all the power of healing is being passed from person to person. You receive someone's object and you hold it and it speaks to you. It's quite an amazing experience. Take a moment to acknowledge the wisdom in it. They're all different and they're all connected to the archetype of healing. And then it comes around and you take your own object back. It's being handed to you by whoever's over here. And take your own object, hold it in your hands, take a moment to acknowledge the wisdom in it. It's been validated. All the way around maybe 30 people, right? Not just that, but it's warm. And that's the thing that, that people are standing, has the, the warmth of everybody's hands on it. Right? And you take that home and you put it in a place that you will see it as a special place for you in your house. I think of it as that the object has been shared the archetype has been strengthened. We all participate. And every object that you receive will speak to you about your own healing. It's, it's quite an amazing thing. Okay. And it's been evoked. It's, nothing can do this like ritual can. This is a complete ritual. And then the last step you can do, which I recommend doing, is you go around in just that same order. Person on your left says their name out loud, Harriet, right? And the entire circle wishes them well. In whatever way works for them, they pray for them, they hold them as filled with healing and light, they send love, they send stress. However, in silence, total silence. So you have 30 people, you know, holding you. And then you ring the, a bell, and the next person says their name out loud. And you know, as you would be amazed how you can remember whose object is what, you, re, you can actually remember these things. They're, I, my memory is not that good anymore. I remember everything, right? 
Um, and you go all the way around till everyone has been held by 30 people who have witnessed the power of the healing in them. And you can do this in 25 minutes. <laughs> I mean, you can get to a profound level of human relationship in 25 minutes and connect everybody to something which is most real and beyond us all. The discovery model heals fear. In the discovery model, we don't talk about cancer a whole lot. <laughs> uh, we know the stories, people's stories, because we've heard them, but that's not the focus. That's not the focus. So I want to just say a couple more things. I'm getting down to a place where I have one word. <laughs> right. There's certain things I, I, I like to talk about <clears throat> because they open, they're expansive. The constriction of holding yourself small is released by discovery model work. <clears throat> the, the, the restriction of holding life small is also released by discovery model work. Right? So I like doing um, discovery model on the subject of mystery. Mystery. And this is usually storytelling. And it can be storytelling in small groups. You can divide people up, or depending on the size of your group um, and the amount of time you have, you may want to do it as a group of the, of the whole. And I start by just talking about mystery as part of life. I mean, it's not supernatural. It's just part of ordinary life. Everyday life is filled with mystery, and because it challenges the cognitive mind, we have a tendency to ignore it because, you know, we don't like those kinds of challenges. Uh, we prefer things to stay in the way we think they're supposed to be. But the fact is that life is larger than that. And mystery is simply an ordinary part of life. Right? And then you do a reflection, very simple, asking people to remember a time. You can tell a mystery story yourself. Remember a time when something happened that um, they, they really couldn't explain. Either they witnessed it or it happened directly to them. It doesn't have to be a very large thing. I mean, it could be the fact that when the phone rings, sometimes you know who it is, even though they haven't called you in three years. It could be something as simple as that. But it is something outside of the lines that we usually keep life um, in. <laughs> And you ask people to remember their story. Okay. And then I like to divide people up for these because sometimes these are stories you don't want them to tell them to you in three words. When you ask for the story, you say, what happened? Reflect on what happened. Right? How did you react to that? Okay. How did you explain this to yourself? How long have you remembered it? Sometimes people remember these stories for 25 years. 
Where did you keep it in yourself? Was it in your mind? Where, where, where do you keep it? And um, what does this say to you about yourself? The fact that this story happened. What does it say about yourself? What does it say about the nature of things? What questions arise for you in your story? Let the questions come up. You may never let yourself have the questions. What are the questions? I mean, it could be as simple as, what's that? (laughs) You know? But what are the questions that this happening, that happened to you from your own experience, what are the questions that this, what do they say? Questions about the world. Questions about life. Questions about yourself. Right? And you have people make some notes on this stuff. And this is not your three-sentence sharing. So I like to put people into dyads on this. And I like one person to generously listening and the other person to share their story. And then they just reverse. Right? And the person, the listener share, and the other person generously listens. And then they reflect together. And you know, you're leading this usually from the front of the room. And you get people, they have a sense of how long they have. And then you say, okay, and now let's take a moment and reflect. What questions rose in your mind about your partner's story? What are the questions that that story raises in you about life, about your partner, right? Um, About what's possible. Okay? And then... They get to wonder together, which is something that people never get to do, certainly in America. Um, They wonder together about the story. You have somebody else wondering about your story, and that other person may have an even deeper wondering than you allowed yourself to have, and yet you recognize that wondering is really there. And then you have them reflect the fact that this thing happened, the fact that these things have happened, right? What does this mean for you, for where you are in your life now? The fact that these things happen. What does it mean for you, where you are in your life now? And then you really get to it, right? people wondering about all sorts of things. Um, people, the discussion can go anywhere, anywhere. Uh, it's one of the most powerful experiences because it takes it out of the here and now and puts it into a whole other context. And the unknown becomes something not terrifying, but something you wonder about. Very powerful. Um, People say that this this kind of a discussion, um, for most people, completely eradicates fear. it, It substitutes a kind of curiosity. It's the most common thing people say. Substitute a kind of curiosity for fear, a true not knowing, you know, very powerful, 
couple more things. You have a disease, everyone is helping your weak body. People are doing things to you, right? And yet you may be in some group where you're trying to use imagery or something like this to heal yourself. But you don't feel like a healer. You feel like a, a, a weak person. I mean, everyone is dealing with you um, with, with your vulnerability up front like that. So in order to put people in touch with their power to heal, um, it's interesting to, to talk about that, that people have been healing one another. Healing is the work of human beings, not the work of experts, right? And people have been healing each other long before there were neuro-oncologists, long before there were experts. People have healed each other in many different ways. Sometimes by listening, sometimes by love, sometimes in ways that are quite mysterious. So we start like this. We ask people to put their hands out in front of them like this. Do it. Very slowly, put your attentions in your palm, attention in your palm. Very slowly, bring your hands towards each other until you feel a sensation. Do not hold hands with each other. Your own hands, bring them towards each other with your palms up until you feel something between your two palms. And then put your arms out again all the way out, way out. Often people don't put them out far enough, okay? And very slowly bring them in, bring them in, keeping your palms opposite each other, feeling into anything you notice when you bring you slowly, slowly. Interesting, hmm? Right? And one more time. Do it with real... Not above your head, in front of you, if you can. Mm -hmm. But get out as far as you... If you need to stand up, do. Okay? Bring them in slowly, palms opposite each other. Okay. Good. And now you can probably spend an hour or two talking about what this experience was like. What was this experience like, right? And then you go to the next step. You put people in dyads, and you say, where is the pain in your body? Where is it? And people write that down, and they think about it. Where do you need healing? Where do you need healing? is an even better question. Where do you need healing? Okay. You're listening to a Healing Circles conversation hosted by Michael Lerner with guests Rachel Naomi Remen and Diana and Kelly Lindsay of Healing Circles Langley. And, you know, they can go beyond. I need healing in my thoughts. I need healing in my beliefs, even. 
and you say, oh, if, if the place you need healing is abstract like that, assign it a place in your body. Right? So I need healing in my beliefs. Maybe they're right here. Right? Assign it a place in your body. And then we're going to do a 20-minute exercise. One person lies down on the floor. <clears throat> the other person sits, sits next to them and follows their breathing into that place of stillness, right? And when they feel ready, they take their hand and they rest it on the part of the other person where that requires the healing. They just lay their hand on there with healing intent, however that works for them. And they sit for about 10 minutes like that. And then without a word, the person lying down sits up, the person sitting up lies, lies down, and you just reverse it. You know, and it could be a shoulder, it could be the top of your head, right? Wherever it is, you put your hand with healing intent on this person. And then you discuss the experience. Well, the experience can be very surprising. The person who's lying down talks about what their experience was like, right? Which is almost always a surprise to the person who was sitting up, what that was like. The person who was sitting up may also have gotten a kind of an inflow of information, images, feelings, colors. All sorts of things can happen. And they share that with the person who was lying down. Right? You want to get in touch with your ability to heal. You don't get in touch with it by a whole lot of people trying to change you and fix you and heal you. You get in touch with it when you offer it to another person. And someone will say to you, your hand became so warm. I saw this, this yellowness through my closed eyelids, I felt the yellowness go to my place where I was in such pain. And they share what happened for them. Invariably, invariably, it's very interesting. I suspect that when you have a life-threatening illness like cancer, your will to live is activated, your capacity to heal is activated, uh, I, I've often wondered what happens when you do this with people who don't, who aren't faced by something like this, but when you do it with people who are faced with something like this, I can't believe your average person is going to have these kinds of experiences. And it's exceptionally powerful. So this is a very simple exercise. And let me give you just a couple more because um, I have not a whole lot of time left. I want to talk about the closing of, of a group. And I also want to talk about the use of poetry. Um, often we'll pass out poems to people 
And I have collections. Start collecting poetry is really a great thing to have, a, a box full of poetry. <clears throat> People start giving them to you as well. And, you know, the poems talk about, let's say, different aspects of, of death. Because I think it's good to talk about death in, in settings where, you know, you're fighting for your life, really. And people read poems to each other and say, how does this relate to my experience? Do I have the same experience, different experience? Very interesting. So I'd like to read you just a couple, right? And the poems may not be directly about death, but they're related. And people will identify with them and run with them to, to really interesting places. And again, the feeling is that of curiosity, not fear. But you, you don't start here. You, this is after your group has been doing discovery model for a while. Okay? Here's Vivek on Flint again. <clears throat> it's called Meteor Shower. Is it a meteor? Did I say that right? Meteor shower. Is it a simple rock tumbling down the slopes of gravity? A fireball vaulting through the midnight sky? A shiny needle drawn through black velvet? Or none of these? but only a perceptual trick in which the solution to a simple math problem given velocity, mass, and direction is being played out in the sky in such a way that even smart people wonder what it could possibly mean. All I know for sure is the belief I hold about it in secret. That and the fact that the very last thing it did in this world was turn into light. It's an interesting poem, right? Here is Raymond Carver's last fragment, which he wrote within hours, I understand, of his death. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the word. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this earth. Very powerful poem to read to people. You can see how these open doors to discussions and sharings and a couple of poems about immortality. Okay. This is Eric K. Mortensen's poem about, it's called Cataloging Mistakes. And it is one very long sentence, which I get out of breath halfway through. So, <laughs> And then there was the time her father died. And she asked me where I thought souls go afterwards. And I said, why do they have to go anywhere? Maybe they die too and are finally at peace. And what makes you think we have a soul anyway? Maybe when we die, we die, and that's it, and that's all. And sometimes dead is better, and wasn't that true of him? And then she just cried harder than before, but quieter. And I knew she would the whole time. 
I knew she would the whole time I was saying this, but I couldn't stop myself. I don't know what made me think that would be helpful, that it would actually be a comfort to her. I just couldn't say what she wanted, like souls go to heaven and watch over us. But even worse was what I never thought to say at all, which was that that his soul was in the way she held her chin just there and in the curls of her hair and in the gold flecks in the blue of her eyes and in her mouth when she peeled, cut, and ate a pear with a slim knife and her thumb and that his soul was in her heart when she asked me this question in the first place. Powerful, powerful, powerful. And our country's poet laureate at one point, Ted Couser, who is a remarkable poet, poetry can can speak truth like nothing else. And it really gets people, they respond by speaking truth back. Here's a, a beautiful poem called Mother. Mid-April already. And the wild plums bloom at the roadside, a lacy white against the exuberant, jubilant green of new grass and the dusty, fading black of burnt-out ditches. No leaves, not yet. Only the delicate star-petaled blossoms, sweet with their timeless perfume. You've been gone one month today and have missed three rains and one night-long watch for tornadoes. I sat in the cellar from six to eight while fat spring clouds went somersaulting, rumbling east. Then it poured, a storm that walked on legs of lightning, dragging its shaggy belly over the fields. The meadowlarks are back, and the finches are turning from green to gold. Those same two geese have come to the pond again this year, honking in over the trees and splashing down. They never nest, but stay a week or two and then leave. The peonies are up. The red sprouts burning in circles like birthday candles. For this is the month of my birth, as you know, the best month to be born in, thanks to you. Everything ready to burst with living. There will be no more new flannel shirts sewn on your old black singer. No birthday card addressed in a shaky but businesslike hand. You asked me if I would be sad when it happened, and I am sad. But the iris I moved from your house now holds in the dusty dry fists of their roots green knives and forks as if waiting for dinner, as if spring were a feast. I thank you for that. Were it not for the way you taught me to look at the world, to see the life in play in everything, I would have to be lonely forever. These get some pretty good discussions going. So just telling, just offering, offering poetry, 
and asking people the simple thing, what does this say to you? How does this connect? Where does this connect to you? How does this connect to you? Um, what possibility does this open for you? You know? And um, getting a collection going. And let me talk about the closing of a group. Now, in the medical school work, we close the group at the end of 15 hours, right? Because that's how long the course lasts, right? But in, in a discovery model group, like, you know, that's going to meet, you know, every two weeks or something like this, right? I would close the group every time. And I close all of my workshops exactly the same way. Right? You get everybody up and standing in a circle, not touching each other, not holding hands, allowing a space between each other, and standing together with the space between each other. You actually say this, because this is what's going to happen when they leave the room. There is a space between each other, and they're standing together. Right? And then you review whatever you did. If you had a day of healing circle stuff, you review. Remember coming here, what did you expect? And remember that first yoga session or whatever it was. Uh, what was it like for you? You know? And then you had lunch, and just remember what happened at lunch, and you just take them all the way through the day. And in our case, we're taking them through 15 hours of, of this, this course. And we say, allow yourself to remember something you're taking home with you today. Something either you learned it here, something about life or about yourself or about other people, right? Or maybe it was something you brought here with you that you remembered, right? Or something that you carried with you and you didn't know how important it was. So just remember something that you're taking home with you that matters to you. And now personalize it. Turn it into an affirmation, a little phrase that goes, I am, blotty, blotty, blah, or I can, blotty, blotty, blah, or I will, blotty, blotty, blah. So just take what you're learning and personalize it. Either I am, or I can, or I will. And, you, and people standing, and you say, okay, now starting with the person on my left, Let's just say these things out loud, <laughs> one after the other, right? And when we do this with the students, there are about 80 people, including the faculty in that group, big circle. And they go around and say something like this, I can be who I am and be a doctor. I can live through the heart and be a doctor most common thing people say, I am enough. I am enough. I belong to a long lineage of healers. You know, just amazing things that people are saying, and your group will say, 
things. And, and you know, I, I first started doing this so that the faculty in the medical school course would know what they had achieved as a faculty, because you don't often know this in a discovery model. And it is a knock-your-socks-off experience. It's just an amazing... And, you know, the faculty is saying things also uh, on just exactly the same level. And, you know, your group goes around, and there's an, a second experience of learning. And a second experience of seeing who people are. And you do this at the end of each group. I am, I can, I will. Right? Beautiful. And then, you know, you, you say goodbye any way that works for your group. Some, some group people start hugging each other. Right? However that works. Right? So, I think all of these things uncover something true and hidden and bring it forward so that we can live among it. It allows each one of us to love the unloved parts of ourselves that are parts of our unclaimed strength. It allows us not to be people with cancer, but people who have been evoked by cancer. People who can live better than before their diagnosis, for however long they live. So for me, I have no cognitive mind, uh, not much of one at any rate, which is why I admire Michael so much. He has such an extraordinary cognitive mind. Um, but for me, this feels natural. I'm, I'm an intuitive person. Um, I see pattern in things. Um, I see meaning in many things. Um, and this is sort of, for me, like sharing the way my mind works, because I'm always interested in what I sense in people. <coughs> the unborn parts of ourselves that need love and tending. Um, and what an invitation something like cancer is to tend those unborn parts and bring them into the world, into our lives. Yeah. So um, I, what Michael said at the end when he was talking, it really is all about love. We got the students, this, you know, our UCSF is like this research school. It's like, it's right up there with Harvard is this scientific research school. And all these children <laughs> are being trained to be researchers, right? Um, most of them are going to go out and love people, but the school is in denial about that. <laughs> So at any rate, they're being trained to be researchers. And a couple of years back, they decided they wanted a shirt, like the you know, common wheel shirt. Like a sh they wanted a shirt for the healer's art. And they wanted it to be um, um, wine color. Right? And it should say the healer's art on it. Okay? And I said, fine, that's wonderful. We, we have a little money. We can do that. We'll get, you know, you design it. 
and here's the, here's a check and get get one for everybody in the class, right? <laughs> so they all decide they're going to wear it the next week after the class is over, right? And I see the shirt and I say, oh, it's great. It says the healer's art. And there's a little, um, a little uh, sprig with two leaves coming out of someone's hand, right? And they think, of course, that this is them as healers. And I think of that this is them as little doctors with two leaves on them, you know? <laughs> so it's quite wonderful. And, and then they turn around and across the back of the shirt, it says... Because medicine is an act of love. And I, a hundred of these millennials walking around in the research center with this thing on the shirt. They've learned to speak truth, their truth. And if you can do it in a setting like a medical school, you can do it anywhere, let me tell you, really. So thank you. I've really enjoyed being here talking about these things. It's something I, I, I don't believe I've ever talked about this before. Yeah, which is really exciting. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I just want to say, Rachel and I have been working together for over 30 years, and every single time I listen to her, I am writing as fast as I can. <laughs> every single time. It's, and, you know, um, this is uh, a woman of genius. A woman of genius. It brings tears to my eyes to have had 30 years together. And... Um, I don't think any of you will forget being in this room today. And um, as Rachel said, um, this is an invitation to each of us. Uh, this is, a, I love, you know, I, I've been calling Healing Circles a learning community, but a community of inquiry is much more beautiful. It's a community of inquiry, um, and we're all part of that community. And uh, there is no single right way to do this. But if we have the intention both to, uh, to find healing in ourselves and to be of service to others, if we hold those two intentions, we're part of this. You've been listening to part two of three of this special day of Healing Circles presentations hosted by Michael Lerner with guests Rachel Naomi Remen and Diana and Kelly Lindsay of Healing Circles Langley on Whidbey Island. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. 